0: Welcome everyone to our first keynote speech today at the IFG's first annual conference. And this is of course from Penny Mordaunt, MP, who is leader of the House of Commons, that strange uh, ministerial role in which you represent parliament in government and government in parliament. And I think Penny in her remarks today is going to talk about both sides of the equation. She, of course, needs very little introduction. Uh, Penny's been MP for Portsmouth North since 2010. Has held a number of senior cabinet positions, including Secretary of State for International Development and uh, Secretary of State for Defence. And in 2022, of course, following the departure of Boris Johnson, she ran for the leadership of the Conservative Party. And in 2020, she published Greater, uh, if I may say, quite an IFG book, (laughs) looking at how we can move beyond... Uh, sort of political division and think about how to to reform our politics so I'm delighted that uh, Penny is here today Um, there will of course be a recording uh, of of her speech and the Q&A that will follow on our website shortly after the session Uh, but now I'd like to invite Penny to speak thank you thank
1: you well thank you very much for inviting me to to be here today the institute i'm a fan of the institute it is a very helpful organization it produces the performance tracker it produces very many interesting reports and in advance of events like this it produces a roundup assessment of the government's agenda and challenges and it was a appropriate coincidence that many of you will have been reading hannah's very helpful scene setter on Blue Monday. A fair summary would be urgent recovery and reform required against geo and domestic political complexity and huge post-Brexit expectations with not much spare resource, capacity, energy, time, or trust. I was reminded of Nixon's 1969 inauguration speech. We are caught in war wanting peace. We are torn by division, wanting unity. We see around us empty lives, wanting fulfillment. We see tasks that need doing, waiting for hands to do them. Have I suitably depressed you all? Well, let me see if I can cheer you up a bit. Today, you're going to hear some ideas and issues that need attention. You may well hear some new policy ideas too from panelists But at times of great challenge, we need to focus on strategy as well as tactics. A successful strategy isn't just for government. It needs to yield opportunities so that we all can make a contribution. If you're here today or watching online or reading this speech after the event, it's likely that you already have a good sense of the challenges facing us. It's also likely that you're part of the solution, whether you're a politician or a civil servant, a council leader, an exec, a trustee, or a member of the media. It requires all of us. Part of the frustration with politics is not that people don't have solutions, it's that people have great solutions and ideas they desperately want to be able to act on. People want to take responsibility. They want to help. Did you not see what happened during COVID? Individuals, businesses, organizations stepped up. There was a huge civic outpouring and a renewed interest in volunteering that we should capitalize on. Now they want to be the change, and we should let them. To unlock potential, to create solutions, We need every part of the UK, every talent, sector and individual to be able to help. And from us in government, that means a clear mission, a commitment to excellence and accountability, the centre ground to be valued, free and empowered citizens and the amplification of hope. One of the things that I do for my weekly business questions in preparation is I drill down into the detail of what successive conservative governments have achieved. And I, of course, review the record of predecessor labor administrations too. And since 2010, there is much to be proud of. I'm not going to take up time here because it is the future that matters. But do tune in on Thursday mornings for further details. However, Technological change, geopolitical events, and COVID have thrown the jigsaw pieces of our nation up in the air, and we are painstakingly putting them back together again. The picture, though, has changed. Many people think that things don't work anymore, at least for them. Some are feeling economic shocks for the first time. Consumers feel they have less power Sometimes it's harder to change contracts or even to make a complaint. We've had the rise of new monopolies which escape our usual ways of ensuring choice and opportunity for our citizens. Whether they be what John Penrose calls natural monopolies like energy and water companies or network monopolies, the online giants which stealthily make their customers stick with them. The customer feels that they're no longer the boss They're not turning to the state, or politicians, or the regulator as their champion. Fair Fuel, which, and Martin Lewis, are their preferred protectors. We have a generation gap, especially in financial resilience. Home and share ownership are still out of reach for some. Young people are fixated on rewriting or tearing down the past because they don't believe they have a future. Older people believe their world has been Amazonked, their values trashed, and the high street hollowed out. And we have a demographic time bomb to contend with. A quarter of the workforce is inactive, others still trapped in low pay by the system only part reformed. Productivity, stronger wage growth is needed to raise quality of life. And the volume of information and data we now have should have empowered us. At best, it hasn't. At worst, it's made us more vulnerable and it didn't help us spot the pandemic that hit us all. For those with the least, the whole system can seem rigged against them. They see it in the so-called poverty premium, as the Center for Social Justice has termed it, that some parts of the private sector impose higher insurance, prepayment meters, high-cost credit, paying to get access to cash. And they see it in the public sector, upon which they depend. They can't choose their school or their GP. Much good has been done under previous administrations in these areas, from raising personal taxation thresholds to school reform, resulting in meaningful improvements to standards and to to strengthen consumer power, bank portability, for example. But there is much more to do. Innovative businesses are being slowed down by the inability of regulation to keep pace. Sometimes government departments take too long to decide even who should be doing the regulating. And the absence of security felt by some has fueled the normalizations of conspiracy theories. Now, I've no wish to depress you. I'm saying these things because to meet the people's priorities, we need to understand them. That is why the Prime Minister in his New Year's speech set them out, what they meant for the economy, halving inflation, growth, and debt falling, and how he will fix access to healthcare and the small boats issue. People want a stake, responsibility, security and accountability or put another way fairness they want power choice and control or put it another way freedom and those principles are are at the heart of my political philosophy and I believe they are at the core of my party I also believe we don't have a monopoly on them they're the values of our country and they are the lens through which I view our legislative programme. Now, we don't do too badly on the Freedom Index. It rates us currently at 22nd in the world. But what would it take for us to get to the top spot? To be on that podium is a choice. As Chancellor, the Prime Minister commissioned work focused on how we get our economy working for all of us, to support competition, to modernise regulation, to raise quality of life and to unlock human potential. That's why he's protected R&D, championed agile regulation and a creative culture, enhanced access to finance for entrepreneurial and fast-growing companies, and championed a culture of creativity. We did the state of competition report We've progressed the Competition Bill, the Procurement Bill, the Retained EU Law Bill, and the Subsidy Control Act. All those things which help drive choice and quality, and we'll continue to do that. As we reassemble those jigsaw pieces, we need what the Prime Minister called a shift of mindset. And he understands that the metric at the heart of all of this is trust. That trust won't be won when people understand how our legislation and how our budgets will improve their lives. That trust will be won when people feel understood, when they feel the benefit in their wallets, in their quality of life, in their resilience, security, and in their opportunity. Upon that trust hangs more than just happy citizens and an election victory, or indeed the progress of the United Kingdom. The very continuation and success of capitalism and democracy also hangs in the balance. If people stop believing these systems work for them, then, like Tinkerbell's light, those systems will fade and die. So between now and the end of Parliament, there is much at stake. Have I now added anxiety to uh, depression? So can we meet this challenge? Well, we can't go far wrong if we listen to the advice of the Institute, and I want to thank them for their important work. I spent some time with them, amongst others, when I was writing Greater, which set out the need for the UK to modernise and how we might practically do that. The mandate, Parliament, the management, Whitehall and Town Hall, the mutuality that binds us and markets. In true play your cards right fashion, I asked 100 movers and shakers what they felt about Britain, how we were doing, what it was that was holding us back, and what needed to change and why. And I mapped their views against every international indices. I asked people what they'd learnt. I wanted to know what they identified with Britain and how that would help us point the way. There are many things that shape a nation. Time zones, weather, geography, natural resources, history, and human capital. But a country's character is also its destiny. The destiny of a country isn't chosen by corporations or political candidates. You can't take a country where it doesn't feel comfortable going. Yes, modernize. Yes, reform. Yes, change. But the pace and scope of change has to be calibrated. Get it wrong and change ceases to become an opportunity and it becomes a threat. Frank Gibbons, in David Lean's classic movie, This Happy Breed, called our way of doing things slow and dull and that it suits us all right. But go too slow and change becomes an event. That, for me, is the lesson of Brexit. So the UK is a paradox. It needs division to test ideas and to make progress, but it needs unity to deliver them. It needs both local and national vision and leadership. It needs continuity to change. It needs diversity and devolution, but consistency in its social fabric and its social contract. It needs shared values and it needs balance. At this point in the electoral cycle, manifestos are starting to be shaped. At this point in the parliament, the glide path to an election that is the fourth session starts to be formed. Everyone gets very excited. Competitive storytelling goes into overdrive. Attention is sought. Balance gets forgotten. And that is why Parliament is so important. Because Parliament, despite its confrontational layout and its penchant for drama, helps create balance. So as leader of the Commons, while I will be focused on getting our legislative agenda through and keeping the building (coughs) uh, from falling down, and um, I'm hoping to get Steve Bray's PA system permanently confiscated. I will also be doing something else too. I'm going to focus on making our legislature the best in the world. That the services it provides to MPs to have the most agency and capacity to serve their constituents is improved. And we will benchmark ourselves in the first instance against our equivalents in the G7. We'll be working with all MPs to rebuild our offer to them. And we're gonna do it swiftly to ensure that they're ready when they arrive and they are supported properly to deliver throughout their parliamentary career. All that you will hear today from every perspective and every political hue will be strengthened if the most direct connectivity from citizen to real power is strengthened. That's their MP. I want to work with them to to ensure that they are as as effective as they possibly can be. And their workplace needs to modernize. The systems that we built during COVID demonstrate we have all sorts of options that we currently choose not to use. We need to move at the speed that business and science needs us to, to improve our responsiveness and our awareness slow and dull will no longer do. And we need new partnerships to help us protect and defend democracy. At his inauguration, Nixon went on to say, to a crisis of the spirit, we need an answer of the spirit. The answer is in all of us and we should set it free. Thank you.
0: I'm hoping that by all clapping, we're uh, saving democracy and capitalism like, Good like stuff. Uh, Tinkerbell. Um, thank you, Penny. That's a very full and wide ranging uh, speech. And I'll, I'll pick up on, on some of the, the themes that you've raised and then we'll go to the room for questions and there's a stream of questions already coming in online. So plenty to discuss. Um, I want to dive straight into that. Um, remark you made there about benchmarking parliament against our G7 comparators. What, 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 Can you tell us more about what you mean by that? What are the sorts of measures on which you think we should be benchmarking parliament? And are there other parliaments you look to and think are exemplars that, that although England is
1: the mother of parliaments, uh, our parliament can learn from? Mm-hmm. So... Um, We we are looking at what others have been doing to to reform, but I think there are two areas where I really want to focus. The first is ensuring people can be as as effective as they can possibly be. And uh, we spend a lot of time, uh, house authorities and others, looking at services to MPs. And if you look down that list, that's catering, uh, it's uh, security, very important things, obviously, to enable people to get on with their business but we have less focus on research capacity, on uh, ensuring situational awareness and uh, and having good regular briefings uh, from the huge resource we have in the the library. It's also about recognising how an MP's job is changing. Uh, I do a lot of casework, I do a lot of traditional research, I scrutinise legislation, all the things you would expect an MP to do, but I also run businesses. Um, I'm a trustee of organizations I set up social enterprises the bulk of my constituency work is setting up social uh, ventures and we have no support to do that we're also all paying for insurance and legal advice that that every MP has to with no uh, combined purchasing power to do that to to reduce uh, the the cost of the taxpayer so uh, all those basic services um, I want to, to focus on and What we do will be driven by uh, a survey that we're doing with members of parliament uh, in the next few months. But I also think we need to look at how we are keeping pace with the world outside uh, the Westminster bubble. Uh, It's not just about our our regulators uh, doing doing the right job. Are we able to come up with the right legislation? It's the speed and a appropriateness of of what we've been doing is that really fit for the modern world so it's the quality of the output but it's also ensuring that everyone whatever their background that comes to parliament is really given the tools to to do a stellar job Uh, we're not there and I want us to be and I I want us to be the best in the world I think that that point
0: you you make there about um Parliament's role in the sort of regulatory environment is a really, really interesting one. And it obviously comes up in relation to the online safety bill, but there's a whole swathe of areas of regulation which is moving really fast. And then you look at the legislative process within, within Parliament, mm-hmm. which is the point you make in your speech, and you know it's really difficult for Parliament to keep pace, both with the technical complexity of, of, of those changes, but also the speed with, with which things are developing. And you know, potentially there's a risk there that uh, industry and so on are, are held back because of the parliamentary scrutiny and either you end up with a, you know, a gap in regulation or parliamentary mm. scrutiny can't keep up. But then of course you have the counter risk that if you don't scrutinize these things adequately, you don't have the democratic legitimacy behind that, then you can get into a really problematic place. So can you say any more about, about how you see um, the potential for modernizing the legislative process.
1: Yeah. So I think Parliament's bandwidth and indeed Whitehall's bandwidth w- has been seen as uh, a bonus, particularly for people like me who are conservatives and uh, you know, we, want to, we don't want a whole raft of new regulation and all that sort of stuff. But um, I think we are, we are in a world now where uh, we, we have got to keep pace with what needs to be done. And we have to reform how we look at these things. I mean, I've re- referenced in my speech, the slowness that it takes government sometimes to even work out what a new business idea is, who should be looking after, which department does it belong in? Um, so we, we have got to find a way of modernizing to enable us to move at the, the, the pace that is required. And I don't think that means compromising on scrutiny uh, we, we have very effective scrutiny mechanisms, and we've got a lot of MPs to do the scrutiny. I'm also interested in uh, not just when things arrive in Parliament, but just making sure actually that impact assessments, which are very handy for parliamentarians, because they tell us uh, the impact of, of a particular piece of uh, legislation in, Doing one thing over another, um, but where they're most helpful is back in the ministry. Um, and uh, we, we know all too often, as, uh, as uh, the institute has pointed out, they are, are they become a tick-boxing exercise, which is stapled to the back of the uh, the chosen course of action uh, before it goes over the road. So um, the focus has to be: how do we get uh, the, everyone, Whitehall, Town Hall? Uh, other other areas as well, to be the most effective. Um, and for that, we need that strategic vision about what it is we are trying to do. And then we can make those judgments about balance of speed, uh, the volume of things that, that we need to do, and, and set that right course.
0: Because you could say that over the course of Brexit and the pandemic, for very good reasons, the legislative process has become Overly expedited, we've had a lot of sort of skeleton bills, giving ministers a lot of powers to legislate using secondary legislation, uh, to get you know, EU law into the statute book to, to do the things that government needed to do at the start of the pandemic, but also potentially setting habits which have, have, have may, maybe stuck a, a bit too much. And I was wondering whether you feel that there's a need for a bit of a, a reset in terms of some of that scrutiny practice maybe ministers have got a little bit too used to being able to rush things through and, and wait for parliamentary, have parliamentary
1: scrutiny after the fact, for example. Mm. So, Lord True and I, I was trying to, as you were talking, I was trying to think of an analogy. The I, I, Best I can do is sort of we are the Dempsey and make piece of uh, the parliamentary estate. We are currently on a program of kicking down doors and going and seeing people. We, we're spending some time with Perm Secretaries. We are doing a SPAD school. Um, uh, our teams have spent a lot of time with the parliamentary teams in departments to get back to good habits and that's everything from really great boring stuff but really important correspondence uh, between members of parliament and and government departments which has kind of fallen over a bit during uh, covid uh, right through to making sure we've got good flows of information and and we've got great two-way flows of information because we never really make the most of this incredible information gathering machine that the commons is i mean in my own office i uh, i can tell you on any week what the trends are in my constituency what's what's in my casework in tray i always said i mean and this was proved during covid i actually um, for the first year of the pandemic every day i did a phone call at 10am for one or two hours talk Talking with every MP, um, we often used to have about 100 MPs on the call about what what they had to get sorted in their patch, and we have about a fortnight early warning system when something's going wrong in the country, just from the information that we gather from uh, from MPs' offices. So how can we use that to help government do a better job? There's all sorts of opportunities here. So Lord True and I are we are on a mission to um, to just raise. Uh, everyone's game and, and again pursue excellence, uh, whether we're a parliamentary clerk, whether we're part of the correspondence team uh, or we're in, a, we're in a private office for a minister. And
0: switching back to the first half of your speech and sort of zooming out a bit, one of the things I, I, my ears pricked up when you said, you know, government needs a commitment to accountability. It's obviously something the Prime Minister emphasised, that he wanted to, to, to lead a, a government that was professional and accountable and so on. Um, do you think that civil service is sufficiently accountable to Parliament?
1: So I think I think there is accountability there, and it's something I take very seriously in my job. Um, you know, if, if ministers, are, you know, if they haven't given... Uh, Notice about something or um, they're not forthcoming with information, I really do go and uh, go into the department and, uh, uh, and, and drag it out. I have summoned perm sex to see me and explain to them why this is going to be different. Uh, I take that very uh, seriously indeed. Uh, but I also think it's not just about Parliament and, and Whitehall. I mean, one area where I think there has been a lack of accountability, and it's not been done maliciously in any way at all, but is in in healthcare. Um, I just know from my own experience of being an MP, um, the uh, you know the local commissioners n- going through processes to commission services, but not <laughs> arriving at uh, the dentist or GP being in post and. I'm in a happier position now, but it has taken my intervention to to get that into the right place. I think accountability is is really key. And as part of that, you need to make sure that the people who are in those jobs are properly supported and they're able to make use of the flexibilities they have. There is, of course, in health, huge variation. People with the same resources, the same uh, flexibilities in commissioning, delivering massively different results. And I think one of the most exciting things that's going on at the moment is the work that Steve Barclay is doing to really shine a spotlight on that. Um, it's very interesting, I went into, largely complaining about my local commissioners, into, um, I'm very good friends with them, uh, into the Department for Health um, just last week. And he's, he's changed everything in there, including the layout. He doesn't have an office. Uh, he sits in a huge open plan office with the directors next to him. And he's very driven by looking at the data uh, and, uh, and using data in a way that, that uh, you know, hasn't been done before. So uh, that's, that's encouraging, but uh, that's what we need. It's that accountability.
0: That's a really interesting example that you give. And of course, his decision, Steve Barker's decision to do that is a sort of a shift back in a way from, from the, the sort of more Andrew Lansley, we're going to separate the role of ministers, the role of of the NHS, to say, actually, I want closer ministerial control over this, which obviously has pros and cons, as we have seen in the past. You've held very senior roles in government. Do you feel it's always sufficiently clear what you are responsible for and what the civil service should be responsible for? Is there a need to clarify those those accountabilities? Because at the end of the day, there are things which you know, civil service is, is, is there, you know, r- running the civil service. Is it fair to expect ministers to be accountable for everything that goes on in their departments?
1: So mi- ministers take responsibility, and uh, I think you have to be very clear in what you expect from people. Within the department, people know, need to know what, what is expected of them. and. Uh, it's very important that we have tools that have been absent uh, absent during COVID, the, the very dry, boring directory of ministerial responsibilities, which quite often Not gets updated every week, <laughs> is really important because you need to know uh, who it is that uh, you, you uh, need to go and see and, and uh, address your letters to, uh, but also hold, hold to account uh, for as well. But I think also, and perhaps more importantly, we need to do more about setting out what it is that we are trying to achieve. Um, In Greater, I spoke about why as a nation we don't really have national missions. Um, uh, But actually, they are really important because if we're just limited by what's in treasury coffers or the resource that we have in Whitehall, we're never going to achieve what we need to achieve. We really need to enable others to help. And without setting out what those clear visions are, for example, uh, you know, during COVID, a lot of people went without dental treatment. When do we want the nation to be dentally fit? So that's, that's an example. Um, uh, and, and then all of a sudden you get people coming up and stepping up and saying, well, actually we could do this, or why don't we draw the information that's held in the 111 service uh, down and let dentists access it. So when someone doesn't show up for an appointment, we can call up someone and say, do you want to come in and have that tooth removed? You know, joining the dots. And, and people want to do that. Uh, people who work in these professions, whether in the public sector or the private sector, are really passionate about doing things better and well. And in government, we can, we can quite often tweak things that will just unlock an enormous amount of extra resource uh, or, or encourage people to do something different.
0: One final question for me, and then I'm going to open up the floor so everyone be thinking of the questions you would, would like to ask. Um, you talk about innovation in, in public services and so on, and to loop back to, to your, your current role as, as leader, you mentioned innovations in parliament during the pandemic um, and, and what's, what use might be made of those in the future. Are there particular uh, innovations that we had that of course have all been now reversed that you think we should think about uh, restoring, using in certain circumstances, particularly I think in relation to restoration and renewal of the Palace of Westminster. Is there scope for some of that experience during the pandemic to help mm. us think about cheaper ways of doing R&R?
1: Absolutely. So I. I must ca- uh, just caveat my answer, that the House decides, which is uh, my speech, I talked about calibrating uh, change and reform to take everyone with you. Uh, and I have to do that in the House, I'm very happy to, uh, because it is the House that does, decides on these things. But just to give you some examples. So, you know, we spent, um, we spent 1.3 million on a remote voting system we used for eight days. Uh, so we can, we can do it, it's sat there, we know it works. Um, uh, we know, given the right support, members of parliament can use it. Um, So it it sat there. We obviously had hybrid uh, sittings and so forth. But the pace of change in parliament is very, very slow. Um, APPG um, and their governance has been in the press recently. The Standards Committee have been doing a report into that for, I think, two years. Uh, We are currently doing a pilot about proxy voting drama. We're, We're thinking about extending proxy voting to people who are very seriously ill so that they don't have to get an ambulance to come in and vote. Uh, you know, if this was a business, um, we would have done that in a in a week, uh, many, many moons ago. So the pace is slow. Uh, and what I would like to do is just us to take a, a much more pragmatic approach and put these these questions to the House faster. Um, uh, you know, it would... Uh, we've, we've got lots of reports coming out about... Uh, some of the strains that parents are under um, in in doing this job. Well, we have technology that would enable them to to cover off some other responsibilities. I don't think any of that stuff we should be frightened of because I think members of parliament value the traditional way of doing things. They like uh, being in the lobby, talking to ministers without any civil servants around. They like being able to discuss ideas and listen to debates. So I don't think it would empty the chamber out. But you're right, Hannah, to point to the other benefit of all of this, which is the restoration and renewal programme. We have changed how we're going to do this to be much more pragmatic and rather, a, you know, enormous great schemes which would shut down Parliament for years and, uh, uh, and be politically impossible. I think that, that we can take, if we've got a proper schedule of works that needs to be done, which we should have, given all the surveys, we can just take a much more pragmatic approach to, to what needs to be done. And if in a year we needed to extend a, the summer recess, but we still wanted to sit, we wanted to have some you know debates, we have a technical solution uh, to that that would give us just more options. Um, I'm not saying that we should do that. I'm saying that if we take that much more pragmatic approach and we use all the tools we have, we will suddenly find we've got a lot more solutions to drive down cost and to make sure that the, the building um, doesn't have to be emptied uh, for for decades. And there are benefits from an inclusion point of view as well. Absolutely, presumably. absolutely. Um, you know, people who, uh, particularly those suffering from long-term uh, health conditions, uh, Uh, or are prevented from getting onto the estate. There are just huge possibilities if we make use of those things. And we shouldn't be frightened of them. I think people value the way Parliament traditionally operates and that will always be the core way it operates.
0: Do you think the the people who most value the way that Parliament traditionally operates are the current 650 people who sit in the House of Commons?
1: Mm. No, I don't, (laughs) I don't think that. I think we've got a whole range of uh, views. but I do think, you know, if someone is, uh, if someone is seriously ill um, or has suddenly had a, a caring responsibility uh, land in their lap, um, that they shouldn't lose their vote um, or their ability to, to contribute to debate. And uh, I think that, again, that enhances the capacity of a Member of Parliament. And I, I just, uh, I want to put more options to the House uh, on, on these matters.
0: I guess my point is we, we might have a different set of people sitting in the House of Commons if we were prepared to do politics a bit differently sometimes.
1: Well, that, I, I mean, I, we do need to, to widen the range of people who are, who are coming into parliament, uh, that's for sure. And uh, I mean, I always, I quite often, as you would expect, get asked to go and speak at events to re- recruit people to become candidates, particularly women and I make a point now of not giving a speech but reading my diary out to them uh, because it's an amazing job. You get to do fantastic stuff every day, some really brilliant things for your constituents, sometimes life-saving things for your constituents if you're trying to get them a, access to a particular drug or treatment, for example, and you get to meet amazing people, have m- amazing experiences. It is the most uh, brilliant job and uh, a lot of the press coverage about being an MP is often uh, either beating us up and uh, encouraging other people to beat us up uh, or it's about how awful it is. And it's, there are obviously stresses and strains to it, but it is a fantastic job and I'll, I'll always encourage uh, to people to throw their hat in the ring. I think if you've got a yearning to do it, you'd be good at it. Thank you very much. I'm going to
0: come to questions now. Um, We'll have a roving mic, so do indicate if you would like to ask a question. Otherwise, I have some that are coming in online. Uh, Please wait for the mic before you ask your question uh, and let us know who you are and where you're from. Maddy, there's Chris in the door, I think. Thank you, Chris from The Times. You had a very gloomy introduction about the the state of the country at the beginning there. Why do you think we've got ourselves into such a a mess? And to what degree do either the the government that's been in power, or indeed the civil service that has uh, tasked with implementing what that government wants, to what degree do either of those bear responsibility for the problems that we have found ourselves in?
1: So, look, I've made a joke about how gloomy I was being in my speech and how... um, uh, depressing I was being. Um, not be- because I think that's all there is to say, um, but because I want to focus on the future and people like me should be focusing on things we want to improve, as opposed to saying, marvellous, look at, look at everything we've done. As I say, tune in on Thursday mornings for uh, the other stuff. Um, but despite everything we have been through, we have actually achieved a huge amount, uh, even during the, the pandemic. Um, I gave a speech at Christmas where I I was doing a parody of It's a Wonderful Life and things that would not have happened if we had not uh, been in office. Um, I gave a speech before then about all of the things that had happened since Brexit, the 6,000 tariff lines going, Um, cabinet this morning, I hope I'm not going to be shot by the uh, cabinet secretary if I say this, but our focus was on uh, enabling regulation and, and deregulation. There has there's a huge amount that has gone on despite the, the pandemic and despite all of the, the bandwidth taken up with, with getting us out of the EU. So I'm not remotely uh, depressed uh, about the situation. I think our country has huge potential. Uh, we tend not historically to reach our full potential. A large uh, amount of the work in my book was about why we don't quite ever get on that top podium. What is it that uh, holds us back? And um, and part of that is about us uh, having that clear mission for the country about those things that people can help us contribute to. During the pandemic, I worked uh, looking after the civil contingencies um, uh, division, and I, I rewrote the resilience strategy for the nation. And a large part of it was about unlocking the potential that sits there in our communities. Highly capable people and organizations that want to contribute. The volume of people we have here uh, in in the country today who now can issue a vaccine, uh, who are on the good Sam app. All of these things we should be be focused on. So um, I I made a joke of it, but I'm not uh, remotely depressed, as you will see on Thursday mornings if you tune in. This
0: question
2: here at the front, Buddy. Peter Riddle, former director and former public appointments commissioner. Can I ask two questions? One, returning something Hannah raised, which is really directly your responsibility, which is the quality of legislation. And it's a long term thing, it goes back over over, over governments over 20 years or more. Skeleton bills, as Hannah said, and also Henry VIII's clauses. And there's a sense for people, and this is not Uh, esoteric to Parliament, it's very fundamental to um, most of the people in this room, if legislation isn't good enough and is constantly changing, and that do you say to your cabinet colleagues look this bill isn't good enough, that's question one. Question two is that since we've seen in this Parliament and in previous ones a high number of MPs um, having ethical problems. Um but the fourth largest group in parliament present are people who've had to resign the whips or had the whips taken away from their, by their parties. This is not a party point at all because it's, it's all three major parties have got it. Do parties need to improve their vetting of potential candidates
1: so on the on the first question, um, yes, I have said as uh, <coughs> chair of Pbl and two colleagues, this is not good enough, and uh, I think that um, It's not just about the the drafting of a bill, it's about its operational impact and a whole raft of other things. So, yes, I have. Um, And I also think that uh, rather than just have things arrive on my desk, early engagement, um, you know, I'm, for example, uh, there's a future PBL scheduled. I've asked them to give us the papers well in advance so that we can, before that cabinet committee meets, go back to that department say you haven't thought about this or um, or, or give them some <clears> other <throat> feedback on it. It is incredibly important. Uh, how we scrutinise things is, is incredibly important and we need to get better at communicating actually the EU retained law bill is a good example of this about how we're going to scrutinise these things because they are well thought of and uh, we need to do better at explaining uh, all of that. So um, yes very important um, and I, I think we've had Particular challenges. I mean, speaking as someone who uh, came into this post, dismantled a legislative program and put one back together again, um, uh, took my uh, PBL clerks off oxygen, uh, presented it to a prime minister, and then had to do the same exercise all over again, putting them back on oxygen. Uh, you know, the, the, we've had some pretty unique uh, experiences, um, and uh, and that uh, obviously doesn't help. But no, you're that, that is incredibly important is it's the quality of what I do and it's one reason why I also want to increase the capacity of members of parliament. Um, also just to understand some new things that they're going to be scrutinizing that they, they might not have a background in. Um, with regard to uh, ethics and um, behavior issues and a, and a whole raft of other things, I think sometimes we need to stop and think why, Are are they just wrong-uns that we get into parliament? Uh, And there might be a few wrong-uns, but it's not the majority of of people that get themselves into difficulty. There are a whole variety of reasons. Um, I've worked with colleagues who have been poorly, uh, mentally ill, suffering from PTSD. Uh, I have worked with colleagues who have had particular huge stresses going on in in their lives. Um, or who have been put in a situation where they've been asked to juggle chainsaws and not had uh, the support. Um, in Whitehall, there's no ministerial HR function. Uh, ministers are sometimes paid differently or under Liz Truss's administration, not at all. Um, every time you move department, you have to fill out uh, all your forms again. They don't give you your old register of interests you have to do it again there's there's no joined upness on, on that across Whitehall um, and as a consequence there's no support if people are getting under pressure that's not saying that you know people don't do bad things and, uh, and and shouldn't be held to account but I think that when you look at these things and you look at and ask yourself why has someone done that quite often there's a lot we could do to create a better environment to preempt some of these things or take people out of a situation if we think they're in in difficulty. And I also think there should be much more collective responsibility between the House, uh, cabinet office, and political parties. Because, for example, and the things that I look at with the House authorities about exclusion from the estate, which we're looking at at the moment, Whatever decision we take on that, it doesn't actually resolve anything in the real world. Whereas if we were more joined up with political parties and the contract that they require their MPs uh, or parliamentary candidates to sign up to, to run uh, for for their political party, we would be helping ourselves. So greater collaboration, uh, greater professionalism, in how we uh, run our, our HR, or whether we're government or uh, uh, parliament, and um, and widen the franchise. Well, that sounds like a, a yes
0: to the government to par- parties needing to be a bit um, more savvy about about who stands for parliament.
1: Well, I think it's I think it's uh, you know scrutiny and background checking, and that is all very very important. But uh, political parties do. Do this. Uh, it's not that uh, they don't take, you know, enormous efforts uh, uh, already. They, um, you know, people sit exams. Um, people are given uh, given training. I think that is important, but it's only part of the uh, of the situation. And solution.
0: You mentioned the retained EU law bill in one of your answers. Um, there's, we have an anonymous question uh, which is coming online. Asking how you think uh, you should balance scheduling within government, within parliament, of dealing with retained EU law versus the government's other legislative priorities. I think it's well established that this is a a big task that the government has taken on and and a very short timescale for for dealing with it.
1: Yeah, so I think there's... Uh, people think and I guess part of the reason why they think it is they look back to what happened when we left the EU and the just tremendous amount of SIs that needed to be uh, got through there what is going to come from the EU retained law bill is slightly different because there will be things that people don't want to reform uh, and think are uh, a jolly good idea and they will will remain in place there will be a, a group of other things that people think need to to be a priority for reform because reforming them is going to improve people's lives and uh, and increase uh, productivity. And that will be the priority for reform. There'll be a whole raft of other things as well, which should be reformed, but are not a priority. And there is the ability to push out the sunset for uh, for those those things, to give yourself more time to do them in the the next uh, parliament. Um, So, uh, and we also know from our experience of Brexit that when you start to look at these things, the enormous list uh, suddenly starts to shrink. I think at one point in one department, there were sort of 4,000 pieces of uh, legislation that needed to be uh, transferred over. And by the end of the process, there were 800. And that's because some things are no longer relevant. some things get folded into bills that are, other bills that are going through. So what's important is the process to crunch through all of this and, and arrive at what it is that you're actually trying to, uh, to get done. And I'm afraid that Parliament's bandwidth has to be able to cope with what the country needs us to do. Um, and if that means late hours, so be it. Um, MPs come to Parliament to get stuff done and uh, we should get stuff done. Do you think specifically
0: on this this point, it's more important to do it fast or to do it right?
1: Well, I think that um, that doesn't have to be a choice. Um, We we have to do it fast um, and we have to do it right. Uh, But that is why making sure that we have good scrutiny, um, that we have very good processes in departments um, I mean you know and, and the right focus strategically which is why you know one reason why we've had that as a theme of the cabinet today um, and you'll be hearing a lot more about about some of the things that we're we're planning on doing um, we've got to do both that's a, poli- it's a politician's answer yeah. but it's also <laughs> correct um Manny, there's a question
0: right at the back mark
2: Thanks, Mark Darcy, BBC Today in Parliament. Uh, I want to ask you a little bit more about restoration and renewal of the Houses of Parliament. Um, First of all, what are your red lines? You talked about Parliament hopefully not having to move out for a prolonged period, getting stuff done maybe over an extended summer. Isn't there a bit of magical thinking about that? An awful lot of people think that there's such a massive amount of work to be done that it can't be done incrementally with a couple of months here and there. Um, A a second point, will does your own agenda for improving parliament should it not feed into the restoration and renewal process surely it's got to be about a bit more than making sure that the electrics don't crackle and the roof doesn't leak
1: um yes you're you're absolutely uh right and just to take the the latter point um yeah we should be renewing more than the the building um democracy is fragile and uh one of the motivations for getting Parliament to, to work better and be more relevant to people is that I want people to have trust in democracy. Uh, I can't tell you how depressing it is to sit in a surgery with opposite somebody who's just ordered something on Amazon which is arriving tomorrow and to tell them that the thing that they really care about is going to take about four years to, to make happen in, in Parliament. So. There's lots that we can can do in that. And and also lots to explain to people uh, the impact good legislation can have. Um, I will shortly start to be producing some communications products and particularly on social media that explain the real world impact of what parliament does. And I think that's something that we haven't often talked about because my office has not been a government uh, department. There's so much that happens in parliament that is a force for good which no one gets any um, spotlight on at all um, so uh, so absolutely vitally important what's going to happen on restoration and renewal we've had um, this this change of governance structure and when people say to me either uh, you know isn't it dreadful we're going to have to move out of the building or um, some other kind of view about how how it should look like i would say well show me the schedule of works that has helped you arrive that that is the decision and nobody ever can because it does not exist um, and these questions can only be answered by looking at what it is we need to actually do whether that's uh, um, protecting the building from fire, whether it is rewiring this part of it or propping up uh, the the basement or or those very, very physical practical things or some more proactive things like improving disabled access, for, for example. So what's gonna happen is over the course of the next 12 months, all of the work that's been going on to produce these surveys is going to actually arrive at what should, what do we damn well need to do? And it is also then going to look at what some options are about how we would start to deliver that. And I mean, the speaker and I uh, of the, and actually the the Lord's um, uh, speaker as well are of the the same view. We just need to be pragmatic about this. Um, We will have opportunities during normal business to actually do pieces of work. And if there is a period of time we need to be out of the building, um, we we have got more options about how to to squeeze that down to the the minimal uh, possible time. And whilst we're out and we might be meeting, you know, using some technology to meet, why don't we use that as an opportunity to uh, maybe um, visit other parts of the country, generate a bit of excitement. There's all sorts of things that we could do um, off the back of it. But I think the other critical thing is uh, I mean we will the, the house the house will decide everything but the house will then have by the end of this year a really concrete proposal uh, or a few proposals uh, that we can then decide what the best uh, course of action is whether it's to for the next few years extend the summer recess or uh, do this part of the building or 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 whatever. Um, the really important thing is is to have a Clear time frame, and also when people are coming into a parliament when we're having an election, that people understand what that parliament is going to look like for them. And until we do those sorts of things, um, restoration and renewal will be politically impossible. Um, so I think this is a big step forward, and all credit to uh, to everyone that's that's got us uh, there. And we're going to be announcing the the new governance. Uh, we've announced how go- the is gonna look, but we will um, shortly be uh, saying more about who's going to be around the new table and, uh, and how all that's gonna work. But it will be a big year for that plan.
0: Just a quick follow up on that. You said a lot about what's important from MP's point of view. What do you think the public want from parliament as a, as a physical? Uh, parliament. What's what's most important. So for the of public course policy? there are
1: there are lots of other people who will need to be involved. The staff uh, as well on the, on the site. I think it's a source of great pride that we we have an open parliament um, that uh, you know look at uh, in the wake of security concerns what what other nations have done in terms of shutting down access to that building. I think it's a huge strength we've got that open. But. Um, as I say in in uh, my book, you know, you, you come into Parliament. Um, if you're queuing to get in, we don't even provide you with something over your head to keep the rain off. Uh, many a time I have, uh, I have walked down that uh, the, the Cromwell Green entrance and fished out elderly veterans from the queue uh, who are being rained on and don't have anywhere to sit as they, as they queue to get into the building. So I'd, my personal view is I, I think we should be thinking about uh, these sorts of things, but also how we, again, come, it's our core business that, that we often don't focus on. How do we make ourselves the best legislature in the world? Um, how, do we, how do we facilitate that? Uh, these are all the s- sorts of things that we need to be uh, thinking about and deciding upon. And it's also incredibly important that we're maximizing the value out of that whole project. Everyone will focus on cost when we should, but we also need to focus on value. And as you say, a, a good parliament, as you would
0: think at the IFG, is really essential in generating a effective uh, government. Well, I think we're going to have to draw it to a close there. Um, I, th- I think you'll agree that's been a, a wide-ranging and really fascinating uh, discussion. So please do join me in uh, thanking Penny for Thank her you all speech very much. today. Thank you. Now, I'm afraid I've got to make an announcement about our schedule. Um, Sadly, Stephen Flynn has pulled out of his keynote uh, this afternoon. So we're going to replace that session with an IFG expert briefing, uh, which will feature my colleagues, Alex Thomas, uh, talking about uh, where the civil service is at. Jess Sargent, uh, who is a lead for us on uh, the Constitution and Northern Ireland. So all questions about the Northern Ireland Protocol to Jess. Uh, and Nick Davies, who leads our work on public services and procurement. So that will be our session after lunch, uh, instead of the session with uh, Stephen Flynn, prior to the session with uh, Lisa Nandi. So please do come back for that. Uh, as I say, uh, lunch will be served out on the landing and also downstairs. So please do help yourselves. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.